0: Greetings and welcome to another different church podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at midnight on Monday night slash Tuesday morning. I am a day late uh, getting this done. So you guys will be hearing this uh, Tuesday sometime or later in the week. If you listen later, I apologize for getting it out too late. Have you ever just had one of those like weekends where you were just like, Done. <laughs> I had a very very busy weekend, lots of work, which was really cool. Uh, church was awesome on Sunday, um, and I just yeah, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> so forgive me. Uh, hopefully you'll feel like this is worth the wait. Um, I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who's been coming on Sundays. Uh, our crowds have been really really great. Uh, there's been a, a bunch of people there consistently. Um, which is really cool. Uh, and you know, it wasn't too long ago, a couple months, where we kind of never knew how many people would be there on a Sunday. Uh, it could be really, really good, or could be pretty light. And you know, it's not, it's not bad if there's not a ton of people there, obviously. But it just, it feels so cool to have a full room whenever we're doing uh, such cool stuff. Um, and we're doing a series right now on Genesis. It's the first series we've ever done. You know we weren't really sure how people would respond to doing a series. They might feel like, you know, they're missing out if they're not there or something, but the good news is people seem to really like it. They came to the first week and they've been coming ever since. So huge shout out to you for just uh, making what we do possible. Um, And huge shout out to you. If you only listen online, maybe you don't even live near us and you just love what we do. And we just want to say thank you so much uh, it's an honor to still kind of be your church home uh, wherever wherever you are. Uh, okay, so a um, couple things. First of all, if you are local, we would love for you to join us this Saturday. We are going to witness some magic at the Zubrick Magic Theater. Go to diff.church and click on the Events tab. From there, you can RSVP. Don't forget to buy your tickets. We are going to go see a magic show as a church and it's going to be the bomb i've already seen the show once i love it it's amazing you gotta go if you're on the fence just trust me you're gonna have a great time it's so much fun um that's the only real announcement uh while you're at Church, feel free to shout us uh, a prayer request um let us know what you like that we're doing uh how we can pray for you. Maybe it's something amazing in your life. We'd love to know about just we'd love to connect with you virtually. Okay, let's listen to a song. If you're not interested in hearing a song, you can jump ahead a couple minutes to uh, part three of Genesis. Uh, But for now, here is some music. shakes uh i didn't um introduce it before i played it because honestly i wasn't sure which song to pick the band was so stinking good this week they all sounded so awesome uh but anyway i just wanted to go with this one um hold on by the alabama shakes Uh, introducing the band if you don't know who they are guiana was singing and playing acoustic guitar uh hannah was singing bgvs background vocals uh will was playing bass peter on guitar Dave on drums and Lyndon was playing keys. Like uh, one was like kind of a little piano, and the other one was was an organ. So, man, if you if you missed the band this week, uh, they were awesome. Um, it's going to be a very similar lineup this week. So, make sure you're there uh, for once again more awesome music. All right, let's jump into week three of Genesis. But before we do that, it is Hispanic Heritage Month. It is
1: Hispanic Heritage Month. So before we jump into Genesis, we are I'm just going to like tell you someone that I think you should know. Who is a person who happens to be Hispanic who has done something incredible. It's this guy. His name is Juan Carlos Finlay. He was a pioneer in the study of yellow fever. Why do you care? Cuz we live in Florida, where there is approximately 1,000 mosquitoes per every human. He like you may remember yellow fever if you studied Panama, the Panama Canal in school, you're like, oh yeah, all those people built a canal. Yeah, well, they all died from yellow fever. So he was like, I think that the mosquitoes are transmitting this disease. And then he got laughed out of the room. (laughs) They were like, that's ridiculous. Mosquitoes can't carry any germs. What a crazy idea. So then he spent the next 20 years of his life collecting evidence and data until it was completely irrefutable, and he is a pioneer of mosquito-borne illnesses. So if you have not died from yellow fever, you have a Hispanic person to thank for that. And also any other mosquito-borne illnesses. So that is your Hispanic person of the day that you should know about. Now, we're obviously continuing Genesis this morning. Um, As a reminder, if you like to do deep dives, you can check out these two books, Genesis for Normal People and The Evolution of Adam by Pete Enns and Jared Bias. And last week we started in Genesis 1. We started in the beginning, but this week we are doing Genesis chapters 2 through 4. It's all about Adam and Eve and their sons Cain and Abel. And if you have read, has anyone read Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2? Okay, you might get like a deja vu feeling. So you read Genesis 1 and you're like, cool, world created. Then you get to Genesis 2 and you're like, we didn't didn't just do this. It's another example of the creation story I don't understand. Weren't the heavens and earth already created? Why are we rehashing this? To make this more confusing, they're different. Uh, Genesis 2 and Genesis 1, the Bible is contradicting itself in the first two chapters. And we generally, in our minds, we just like blend these together into one. Our mind's like, that can't be possible. The Bible can't contradict itself in the beginning um, immediately. So we just blend them into one, and our brains feel happy, and we don't stop and question. So the difference is the order of creation is different. So in Genesis 1, the vegetation is created on day three, and then animals on day five and six, and then humans is like this grand finale on day six. In Genesis 2, one human, Adam, is created before any vegetation or animals, which he then gets to name, and then after he's like depressed for a long time, looks at all the animals on the planet, apparently, Uh, and then he's like, nobody looks like me, and then God's like, oh yeah, sorry, Forgot to make you one of you. And then takes a bone out of his side and makes Eve. Also, the whole feel of the entire chapter is different. So in chapter 1, God is like lofty, high, moving things around. Like God said, let there be light. And there was light. A plus. In Genesis chapter 2, God is like much more human So God is like involved in the action. God's like forming Adam out of dirt from the ground, Uh, forms Eve out of Adam's side like a sculptor. Plus God plants this garden. God doesn't say let there be a garden. God's like planting the garden. And then God says, I think I'll take some afternoon strolls in the garden. Now why would the Bible, God's word as it is often called, allow there to be two completely different, Creation stories at the very beginning. It's because Genesis 2 is not actually another version of how the cosmos was created. It shifts the focus to the story of Israel. Genesis 2 is actually chronologically the older. So Genesis 2 was written before Genesis 1, which That's just so great for us as modern readers. We like everything to be in a line. We're like, well, this happened, and this happened, and they're like, well, no. Genesis 1 was put together during the Babylonian exile. Genesis 2 was written a couple hundred years before that when Israel still had kings. And when the Torah was put together as we know it today, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis 1 was put as this like grand introduction to the story, like the attention grabber, we're gonna suck you in. God is the creator, the chaos tamer, super important. And then Genesis 2 moves to the real heart of the Torah, which is the story of Israel as God's people. Now it may seem very strange to you to think of Adam and Eve as focusing on the story of Israel because Israel is not even mentioned Stick with me. We're going to make this make sense, okay? So to make it make sense, we have to jump forward a little bit to get to Cain and Abel in chapter 4. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, it's where the Bible opens with a murder. Delightful. So Cain is a farmer. Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's two sons. Cain is a farmer. He, like, works the fields. Abel goes out, takes care of all the animals. Abel is like, I am going to make a sacrifice to God. So he takes some of his animals, and he's like, here, God. And God's like, cool. Cool. I love it. And then Cain is like, I have some vegetables. Here, God. And God's like, I don't like it. And then Cain, in a fit of rage, murders Abel over this. He's like, I mean, you know what? He can't live. God did not accept my vegetables. <laughs> so God is then like, oh, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain's like, I don't know. I did not seen him. I mean, stuff that I murdered him. I did not seen him. And God's like, I'm God. Don't lie to me and then banishes Cain to wander the earth forever. And then Cain instantly becomes paranoid and is like, no, you can't banish me because I've done this thing. Like, everyone who sees me will try to kill me. And God's like, okay, I'll put a mark on your head so everyone knows keep their hands off. And Cain is apparently satisfied with this and then just leaves and goes and settles in a land named Nod, which is Hebrew for wanderer and gets a wife, has a kid, names kid Enoch, builds a city, names the city after his kid. And if you have ever read this story to a skeptic or just an annoying Sunday school kid like me, you may know what question is coming next. Where did Cain get a wife? (laughs) If Adam and Eve and Cain, because he killed Abel, are the only three people in the universe, Where did he find a wife? And who are all these people that are apparently going to want to kill him? Genesis 4 just takes like a bunch of people and drops them in our lap with zero explanation. They're like, here you go. No one's gonna ask questions about this, right? Plot hole. (laughs) So some readers try to explain this by using Genesis 5, which is like, and Adam and Eve later had many, many children. Aside from that being a weird explanation, The story does not say that or even suggest it, and this is why this is ridiculous. So Cain is banished, and then Adam and Eve have more kids, and then somehow Cain is reconciled to them, comes back, waits for his sister to grow up, marries her, and then is banished again, and goes and builds a city somewhere else. That makes zero sense. Here's a simpler explanation that um, probably was not given to us if you grew up in an evangelical setting. There were other people living outside the Garden of Eden all along even if the story doesn't explain it. Now, this kind of makes us a little uncomfortable because the path goes towards something else, which is perhaps the story of Adam and Eve is not a scientific account of how humans came into existence. Maybe it's about something else. Maybe it has a deeper meaning. Here's a suggestion, this is the deeper meaning, that I'm going to put forward to you, and we'll break it down, and you can decide if it feels right to you. The Adam story is a story of Israel as a nation in miniature. It's a preview of coming attractions. So let's try to forget what we know about the story of Adam and Eve, and look at the basic plot line. So Adam is created by God outside of the garden, and put into the garden, called paradise. When he enters the garden, God's like, you can do anything you want, but don't eat this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's off limits to you. Don't do it. And Adam's like, sure, I won't do it, but then obviously does it. Because humans. (laughs) And on the day you eat it, God says, you will die. It's a pretty stern warning. Great. Except Adam does eat it, and notice what happens. He doesn't die. In fact, he lives to the ripe old age of 930, apparently, and has lots and lots of kids. Now, on one level, like physical death is introduced because these people no longer have access to the tree of life, which means eventually mortality will take them. But not on the day he ate of the tree. But on another level, to be exiled from paradise, to be thrown out of the garden is death for Adam and Eve. This does happen on the same day they eat the fruit. They eat it, and God's like, out, and then puts an angel with like a giant flaming sword. I imagine like an anime character with like a sword 17 times bigger than the person just standing there like, you better not come back. So they're driven out of the garden, they're not allowed to return. We get the same metaphor in Ezekiel 37 when you have this valley, this mass uncovered grave of dry bones that are representative of the people of Israel not being there, being in exile in Babylon. And why would they say that exile is death? Exile's not like relocating today. Israelites were a people of the land. God promises them the land to Abraham in Genesis 12. The land is everything to them. If they're not in the land, that means God is not with them. To be cut off from God means death. Spiritual death. And remember when this is written, when this is collected, they are in Babylon. They are in exile, they've been forcibly relocated, the temple has been burned to the ground. It does seem like God is like, I'm done with y'all. Had enough, bye. (laughs) Y'all can figure this out on your own. And without God, Israel had ceased to exist. They had no nation, they had no king, they had no temple, they had nothing and they weren't even in their home. Israel is dead. Adam was created by God, put in a garden, a paradise, asked to follow a command. Breaks the command, is kicked out of the garden. Israel, created by God, outside of paradise, put in Canaan, this promised paradise land that was promised to them, and then told to follow the law of Moses, which they didn't, and now they're kicked out. Now, I know that was like a lot. So everybody just go, take a breath. We Let's come at this from a different angle. So this is how we've been taught to think of the Adam and Eve story. Adam and Eve are fresh off the assembly line. They are fancy, brand new, shiny, perfect superhumans. And God puts them in a beautiful place and tests these perfect little baby creatures with one thing to see if they really mean business. He's like, Do you see this tree? Don't eat of the knowledge of good and evil tree. Not for you but they failed the test, and they ate the fruit. Sad. And then they lost, because of that, not only their own perfection, but the perfection of every human being for all of time since. This is a very popular understanding of that story. Um, St. Augustine, who lived like 350 CE, didn't help. He was like, went hard on this story, and he went even further. He's like, not only did you get your sinful nature from Adam and Eve, you inherited their guilt. So... For every human, forever and ever, amen, you're bad and you're guilty. You got born, sorry about your life. (laughs) You're already doomed. But not everybody has read the story like this, especially the Eastern Orthodox Church, which has been around as long as the Catholic Church, mind you. Okay. And frankly, if we really look at this, it's hard to see how that reading even makes sense. What if we read it from this angle? Instead of seeing Adam and Eve as a fall down from some kind of perfection, What if we see it as a failure to grow up into godly wisdom? Think of Adam and Eve maybe not as like perfect superhumans, untainted, but as children, as naive children who were meant to grow, to grow into obedience, but they were tricked into following a different path. What was the command God gave Adam and Eve? They can eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Which to me raises an obvious question, why that tree? Like why not a command to not eat from the tree of death and disease? Or the tree of lust and lying? Like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Come on, why would eating from that tree that gives you to know what is right and wrong carry the death penalty? Does that seem extreme to anyone else? That sticks out like a sore thumb. But if we're thinking about this as a preview of what is coming for Israel, I think it actually makes a lot more sense. Knowing the difference between good and evil, between right and wrong, is the point of the law in the Old Testament. The law is given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and it tells the Israelites what is good and what is evil. In Ten Commandments, and then in like a lot of chapters, which you will fall asleep if you read. If they obeyed what it said, things will go well for them, they will stay in the land. If they disobey, things will not go well for them, they will get kicked out of the land. This is repeated over and over. And the book of Proverbs has a similar idea. In the first nine chapters, before you get to like the pithy little sayings that we like to make church posters out of, it has this whole narrative about to be following God, to obey God, is to walk in wisdom, to learn wisdom. And everything else is foolishness. Foolishness leads to death. In Proverbs knowing what is right and wrong is what was expected of Israel as a nation and to gain that knowledge they had to obey God I don't think God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from that tree because knowing the difference between good and evil is somehow wrong it's not that God didn't ever want them to know but they needed to go about it God's way and they didn't so to use the language of Proverbs Adam and Eve were foolish they took a shortcut to get to what was meant to be a good thing. And, like, maybe you've never thought about it this way before, so let's hit it from one more angle, okay? I'm sure you remember the serpent, the snake, very crafty. That's what the, the English translates either as crafty or shrewd. This, this word in Hebrew is the same, crafty or shrewd. More crafty than any other animal that God made. Someone who is shrewd, kind of has, like, street smarts, So they're not gonna be taken in by a card trick on the corner, right? They're not naive, they're not simple. They know how to get to what they want in life. And when the shrewd, crafty serpent comes on the scene, Eve, he has her wrapped up and confused in like two verses. He's like a veteran car salesman. Sorry if you're a car salesman. (laughs) But like, you just show up, you've never bought a car before, you have cash burning a hole in your pocket, you're like, I need a car, and this person is like, I know what to sell you. A car you don't need with a payment that you can't afford with all kinds of warranties and features and everything that you make no sense for your life. And also lots of hidden fees. Eve is naive, she's not crafty at all. She's like a child. She has no idea that the serpent could be lying to her or telling her half-truths. And the serpent says to Eve, look lady, God's lying to you. The reason God doesn't want you to eat from that wonderful, beautiful, delicious tree Is because God knows that when you eat of it, you will become like God yourself. You'll know good and evil. And what a clever half-truth that is. Because if they eat of the tree, they will be like God. Which is what God wants eventually. We talked about this last week. God was planting humans, put humans around the world to be his divine image bearers, right? So God wants the humans to look like God, to be more like God. Isn't this the whole point of the Christian faith? If you were raised in church, is to become more like God, to be who we were truly created to be. But God is leading them slowly and carefully. They, didn't, they weren't ready to know good and evil. It wasn't age appropriate. They weren't mature enough because as soon as they eat, they're aware of their nakedness and they are ashamed. This is a little odd, don't you think? Like, of all the things that could have happened, like the earth could have opened up and swallowed them whole, they could have been struck by lightning from the sky, but instead they were like, oh no, (laughs) I gotta cover up. Is that weird to anyone? Why do they care about being naked? Think about little kids. Little kids run around the house and sometimes outside the house, not a care in the world. Just naked. There's a, one of my friends has a kid who comes over on Thursday nights and like hangs out and he, when he wants a diaper change, he just takes it off. He just runs laps, naked. Nova is in a diaper anytime she eats food because it head to toe oatmeal. She does not care. She will happily run around the house in just a diaper. Any of you want to run around the house in just a diaper? No, why? They couldn't care children are naive. They don't know that they're supposed to cover up. They don't know that they're supposed to somehow feel ashamed of their body, like if it's naked in public. They have no idea. But imagine if you have a three-year-old and you gave her a magic cookie that suddenly gave her the experience of a 25-year-old, but without living any of the years in between. She'd probably scream and lock herself in a her room, right? Right? find something to cover herself. Much like Adam and Eve were like, oh no, oh no, I got to cover up. This is awful. And they covered themselves in fig leaves. They weren't ready. Without the maturity that comes from obeying God and living life a little, they couldn't handle the truth. They weren't ready. They weren't mature enough for the knowledge of good and evil. And maybe now we can see the point of the story a little differently than we've thought about it before. Because the choice put before Adam and Eve is the same choice that was put before Israel as a nation every day. Learn to listen to God. Follow God's ways. Then you will live. The story of Adam and Eve makes this point in some kind of mythical narrative. Proverbs makes this point in wisdom literature. The whole Old Testament makes the same point in like a historical narrative story the story of adam and eve is a preview for israel's long journey in the old testament of struggle remember that israel the word means to struggle with god it's a long it's a preview of the long journey israel takes and adam isn't actually mentioned again in the old testament except for one time in chronicles where he's like One name in a nine chapter list of names because the Bible is never boring. One time Adam gets mentioned in the rest of the Old Testament. Does that strike you as strange? If this was meant to be a story of how humans came into existence. Instead, the Old Testament focuses on the real point, which is Israel itself. And Israel does get to come back to the garden. Adam gets kicked out, but Israel comes back after the Babylonian captivity, after the exile. They spend like 58 years-ish there, and they get to come home in 539 BC. And at the end of the day, Israel's national story over and over again in the Old Testament is less about them and more about God who never lets go of them. Always moving to bring them back to paradise. Even though they've experienced death, they've been cut off from the one thing, the land and their God. The story of the Old Testament says, actually, you haven't. On that day, it means death, but there's hope. I'll bring you home again.